and welcome back this week to The Square. This week in our interview segment, we're fortunate to be joined by 1st District Erie County Legislator Howard Johnson. Legislator Johnson, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, gentlemen, and it's a pleasure to be here. You are our first county legislator we've had on. We've had several members of the state uh, legislature, both Senate and, and Assembly. We've had we've had Common Council Common members. Council, yeah. uh, we had... Randy Hoke, everybody's favorite Hokomaniacs. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but the, you're our first county legislator. So, tell us a little bit about you. Who is Howard Johnson? You know, you know, what's your background? How'd you get into politics? Um, I am, I am Erie County Legislator Howard Johnson of the first district. First, being number one, the first district. I won't say it's the number one district in Erie <laughs> County, but it's the first district in Erie County. My involvement in politics was I volunteered on a, some campaigns. I was first introduced back in like 2007. I was working on a council member's campaign who was a professor over at Buff State. And that's how I was introduced into politics. Then I became a volunteer for that for a uh, East Side political organization, Unity Coalition, where we help political people get elected, whether it be through the petitioning process, taking them out, meeting the community. That's the community. That's how I got uh, involved. And, you know, I was approached a few times about running, but I wasn't sure. So I went on this 10 year um, educational process to see if it's something I would want to do, you know, by volunteering on others campaign, because, you know, you have to understand what you're getting into before you actually get into it. A lot of folks like to jump into this. And they um, don't fully understand what it is. And I found volunteering being an excellent way to get involved, to understand and to know what the demands of uh, actual political run is. And so I did that for 10 years. And then uh, this opportunity for the first legislative district presented itself and I seized the moment. And, you know, based on what I was able to, you know, do do volunteerism, um, it was it was it was an easy transition. I won't say the check the. The election was easy, but the transition to running was pretty easy because I had an understanding of what was going on. Tell us a little bit about like your personal background. Like, okay. what, what's your what's your your field of work, your career, those those different things? You were in with the U.S. Army or National Guard or both? Yes, yeah, I was. Yeah, I was at both. Um, two years uh, active, eight years reserve status, Army National Guard. Um, I, I did that. I was a uh, seventeen years old when I joined in. I, I remember being a junior in high school, and I was like you know, what I'm going to do. So I went and joined. Then I went home and told my parents. They weren't happy with the decision. But, you know, at that point, I had signed the paperwork and wasn't nothing they really could do at the time. So they supported they supported that decision. Um, I just remember my father taking me to go see Full Metal Jack. He said, this is what they're going to do to you in there. But, you know, <laughs> it was at that point, it was just too late. Uh, I may I have a finance background. I went to a school for uh, business administration and I have like uh, 20 years of banking between HSBC and m and Bank, where I spent uh, 20 years uh, there working in various roles. But uh, the roles I played the most in was compliance work, where that's what we, you know, watch accounts for money laundering, structuring, placement, and all those things to that nature. So, you know, a strong financial background. Then I um, pivoted to the county's budget office. Well, I worked in the budget office for a year before I made this run. So, And you've been a county legislator since 2019, correct? Yes, sir. So when yeah, are we, 2019. When, when are we going to get four-year terms for county legislators? Because, you know, I, the two-year term is no good. That's that's nonsense yeah. stuff. Yeah, you know what? I think we, it would have to be moved to a referendum for the public to make that. But I believe that in order for 
you to have an effective role in any form of government, you need more than two years because the first year you, you, you get in and the second year, you know, you're planning this run and, you know, a lot of stuff get lost, get lost in a four way. So it's like maybe a one year, really a one year term with it, because that second year, you just your thought process is about the actual run. But I am all for four years terms and also a pay increase. But that's yeah. another. Story. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. I, 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 so I legislators are extremely underpaid compared right. to other especially counties, Erie County legislators compared to other counties right. in New York State. Right. Um, yes. Often a lot of smaller counties are paid much yes. higher than them. But like, as I've worked professionally. I've worked for a state assembly member. I've worked for a member of Congress. I've worked for a county legislator. All two-year terms. And what you're saying is correct. Like the first year you're in, you're kind of getting your bearings, learning what's going on. And the second year, when you could actually be effective, you're essentially running for office again. And then that, 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 and then the next year there's new members of the legislative body. So you're getting, you're, you're getting, you're creating relationships. You're learning how to work with them. You're figuring your way around it. And the second year, when you can finally get stuff done, you're running for office again. It's, it's this crazy cycle that like, you know, I, I don't know that we need six year terms like the U S Senate does, but like the common council, like four year terms, you, you get a, a good chance to get things done then. Yeah. And when you think about it, the uh, city council were two year terms at one time and they went to a referendum yeah. and said, hey, we need to change these to four year terms. And I think the same thing needs to uh, happen with in county government as well. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I, it, it's If we get set up so that, you know, county ledge was once and then, you know, so like next year we've got this common council cycle so that in mm-hmm. three years would be county ledge. That would be perfect. So every other time we and so we're not turning too many people over at the same time because I do think you need some continuation continuity, continuity yeah. yeah in in government and if we had a whole new common council and a whole new county ledge at the same time that would be really to the detriment of not just the residents of the city but the county as a whole absolutely because there's no there's no real work being done because like you say you're getting to know the new members you're trying to get a feel for one another we're trying to get everybody on maybe the same policy cycles like say hey you know we got this initiative we got that initiative and i think that once like you said when you have that turnover everybody comes in with their own set of ideas and you know things that they want to do so you're i i'm absolutely correct we need those four-year terms just for continuity purposes yeah and 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 what uh, the other thing that happens that i don't think people realize is when you have these two-year terms and you and you have turnover you end up creating a stronger executive branch because they have the continuity so they know how these things work and they kind of push things through over the last 30, 40 years, the executive branch in City Hall has gotten much stronger as Common Council has gotten smaller. The at, Eliminating the at-large members for the Common Council really strengthened the, the mayor's office quite yes. a bit. Whether you believe that the current county executive has too much power or not, I tend to think that those people in Marilla and Wales are crazy. But uh, <laughs> if you if you think that, like you know, I'm, he's not a tyrant, but you you cannot say that he doesn't get more power as because of two year terms because there's he has the continuity of four year terms, and yes. especially once he gets a second four year term and he's been around for a while then he has more control of the process because everybody else is trying to learn how it goes. Yeah, I de- definitely agree. And you can see through the county executive's uh, terms in office that he's been strong. Every every year he's gotten stronger. Mm-hmm. From year one to where he is right now, he's gotten a lot stronger. And I think he's probably will go down. And I'm going to go on record and say it's probably one of the, probably the best county executive the Erie County's had. 
let's get back to your role as, as a county legislator. Uh, I, I like to say when I worked for the county ledge that like the county legislator is essentially like for most people in their neighborhoods, actually their congressman because like Brian Higgins, you read about him in the newspaper, but you never see him if you live in most parts of his district because well, first part, his district is so large, but too like mm-hmm. you know he's he you know he's got to spend so much time in Washington. Your assembly member, your your state senator, again, they have to spend time in Albany, and their districts are larger. Your county legislator is those are those are more neighborhood based districts, and yes. because of that, that is the person that people call all the time. And so people feel like they, they have a much closer connection to their county legislator. So what's that like for you? You're like you've come from like an organizing background as well as, you know, your, your finance background being essentially like the first responder of the elected officials. Well, you know what it is? I, I think it's a, uh, it's, it's a it's great because I like being out in the district. I like interfacing with the community. I like hearing the concerns of the community. I like to say if whatever I can do to help in that process, because I get it, my office get a lot of calls. They consider this a part time role for me it's actually full time. I do this full time because of the concerns of the district. So I like to be accessible to them so they can see me be out there. And a lot of times that's what they want from their elected officials. They want to be able to. So reach out and touch you. They want to be able to see you in the dish. They want to be able to take take up their concerns. And the public is a lot smarter than we give them credit for because they know who's able to do what. But once they have the opportunity to interface with an elected official, then they can just put it all out there. They can talk and talk and talk it through. And, you know, and, and my job is that as an elected official, if it's something county, I can handle that. But if it's something I try to direct them and guide them to whoever it is that they need help from. So if it's a city issue. I try to work out of the districts that I represent, the council members of that district. That, so if there's a concern, I can call that office and say, hey, this citizen has a concern. How can we best help to address this problem? And I've been I've been pretty good at doing that, um, you know, galvanizing the electeds from the city to be involved in the district as well. You're also, as part of your role as a county legislator, you are chair of three different committees, correct? Two. Two committees. Uh, Economic development okay. and uh, public safety. Well, I'm not the chair of the NWBE. The okay. NWBE chairs are uh, actually uh, Lisa Shamara. Oh, okay. So you're chair of, of two committees. Now, people might like, or, or I'm going to ask you to explain what the committees do. Uh, but I will say that, again, from my experience working at the county ledge, that is where a lot of the actual county legislative work gets done. A lot of the stuff that gets introduced to the legislature at large gets then referred to specific committees and that's where the actions happen and then whether it gets sent back to the full legislature for some sort of vote or if it gets tabled or it gets dismissed or it gets read and filed you know all those things can happen in in the committee and you've hit you've hit the nail right on the head i mean that that's a great explanation of what happens you know with county business Hey, when the item comes through, wherever it comes from, hey, it it comes through to the uh, body, the chair of the body, directs it to their appropriate committees. And from there, that's where the action takes place at. So my role is economic development. So a lot of stuff with road work, stuff with, you know, ECC and things of that nature will come into committee. You know, we'll, we'll talk about the item in committee. We either vote on it right there, and it has to go to a larger body's vote anyway. It's going to take a larger body to vote on it anyway. But we we vote on a committee, then we know we have a pretty good groundwork that that work is going to be passed on into the full uh, full legislative session. So a lot of the role work and 
uh, things of that nature come right through the economic development community. But you've hit the nail right on the head beautifully, you know, uh, explaining how that uh, how, how, how the process works. What are your goals for 2022? What's your agenda besides, you know, getting New York State to pony up a billion dollars for a football stadium? What else are we going to do this year? <laughs> so, you know, the, I, I ran on three things and I wanted and what I wanted to do was stay on task with those things. So when I first ran, it was to address some of the food desert issues, um, reliable public transportation and economic development in the in the districts on a local level, trying to, and, and I'll start with the economic development, trying to have the county who were, who were mainly responsible for road work to buy into the fact that, hey, although our role is not in economic development, but we need to play a role in it because the county, the seat of the county is Buffalo. Mm-hmm. So we need to be as active in that process as possible. We've, I, we've you know, over this last two years, we've uh, actually started a process where we went, we went along those lines to identify some funding that can actually help out in the district, whether whether it's streetscape work, whether it's um, helping a business put a roof on something uh, and things to that nature that we were able to identify some, you know, not a lot, big, not millions and millions of dollars of funding, but something that helped them if they are, you know, hey, we need maybe 20, 30,000 to get over this hump. We can actually play a part in that. Uh, next point I want to talk about is the reliable transportation, public transportation. You know, I, when I first ran, my mother who worked at she worked at Kim or Ma Pack. My mother's not a driver, so she liked catching the bus in the morning. So she would get out, catch the 22 bus up to Elmwood and take the 20 all the way down to uh, Kim or the Ma Pack. Well, they had cut her route and it forced her into retirement. Now, she wasn't ready. I mean, she was at retirement age, but she wasn't ready to retire. And they cut that route. And, we, and, and, and they have been cutting routes like that. You know, forcing the hand of the public to find other ways to, to transport, you know, to be, you know, for public transportation or, you know, uh, cab service or, you know, finding rides within their own uh, structure to that. And, and one of the things I said is like, wow, we need to press the NFTA in regards to this uh, thing because we need to have those bus routes. Right. Yeah. Those yeah. bus routes are paramount and, uh, and key to folks just basic uh, basic needs to get back and forth to work. Right. The, the public transportation, it's, it's not just that people need it right now to survive, to get to their jobs. But if we have any hope of economic equity or growth and ending generational poverty for some families, what you need to have is a robust public transportation system because it's unreasonable to go, all right, your last two generations have been poor so it's 16 by a car that's the, i mean that's impossible you might as well say right. you might you might as well say at 16 please cure cancer just do that yes. for us no no big deal yes i and, and that's agreed you know and i think that you know with with the, the nfta service here it's 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 public transportation so it's a public entity it's not a business mm-hmm. it's not something where they should look to say hey we need to be in the black if they're in the red that's okay that's fine because that's, you know, you're loyal and you're providing reliable service. That's, that's okay because you guys get enough of the uh, a funding structure that comes down to help you in that cause. I don't think they should be looking to make any turn, any profits. It's there to 
be reliable to the public at all at all times. Yeah, I mean, if they're at all doing something where they're turning around and like they're in the black, they're making any profit. That just means to me that they need to expand services to the point where they aren't. Um, Absolutely, we see like that. You know, public transportation in Rochester is actually much more robust than it is in Buffalo. Yes, um, yes, they have the same restriction. The, the same issues of being an upstate new york city that buffalo has and yet they seem to be able to make it work better and look i'm not going to come in and say I, I know how to do the nfta's job i know it's very complex um mm-hmm. but i would like to see them do better i believe they can and you're right when you think about the more metropolitan cities now let's start I stick at rochester they have a more robust system in place and a better paying wages for their uh, workers yeah, as well so right. you know those are things that we have to look at to look look at addressing to make our system comparable right yeah i mean i know that was one thing that um nfta was criticized for recently where you're like well we're just having a tough time recruiting drivers and i was like well yeah because like you're paying 16 dollars an hour okay sure maybe you can get into like a public employee retirement system but look people like you know, like my father who's like 67 who's like oh well public retirement systems are great well it's not tier one anymore it's not even tier four anymore it's tier six yeah. and you're talking a radically different retirement system than you were talking even like 15 years ago Absolutely. And, and, and with this retirement system, you're going to have to put in, you know, you're 4143, you're going to have to kick in yeah. to offset whatever it is that retirement system doesn't make up for. So you're going to have to offset it with your own money as well. And when you have jobs like this, at one point as a kid, you looked at an entertaining drive and say, wow, they got a great paying job. They'll be able to retire and provide for their family, but not so much now. Right. Um, right. When you have places like McDonald's, I was just looking at a post where they had a Tim Hortons in Blaisdell that's offering $16 an hour right now just to come in, you know, to to serve a cup of coffee. Right. It was, uh, laser Tron in Amherst. Now, of course, yeah, where, where Laser Tron is, you need to have a car to get there. But they're offering like $19.5 an yes. hour. And all you're doing is handing out guns to little kids and like pictures of like Bud Light to their moms. So, right. I mean, it's it's not <laughs> the most taxing job that you could possibly have. Right, nineteen dollars, and and if if I had a choice, whether to drive that big bus for sixteen dollars an hour or hand butt light out to a parent at nineteen dollars an hour, I'm gonna think I'm gonna take the job. At <laughs> well, yeah, time. I mean, maybe like somebody gets mad at you at Laser Trine every so often because like you're not, you know, their kid sucks at shooting each other, or or because like you know, you didn't refill their Bud Light regularly. But you know, as a bus driver, a public front facing like that, you deal with a lot of difficult yeah. people, a lot of difficult situations, a lot of emergency situations where you know because you're essentially in some cases a first responder to mental health crises or to public safety issues because it's it's not like we're going to have social workers or public safety officers on every bus route Um, exactly so you you have to deal with that and and you have to you know you do stuff like as much like i rode the bus for like 10 years when i lived in the city most people who ride the bus i don't want to get this twisted but most people who ride the bus when somebody who is say in a wheelchair is gets on when the ramp flips over they know that they're if they're sitting in the front bench they have to get up and move to somewhere else because that bench is gonna get flipped up so they can lock the wheelchair in but not everybody and some people get really mad when you tell them that they have to move because now you're you're treating this person in a wheelchair better than you're treating them and that's craziness but like you you so then now you have to deal with somebody who's angry while all you're trying to do is make it so that this person can have a safe trip. 
Agree, agree. It's one of the things I campaigned on, this reliable transportation service. So I know this upcoming two, this upcoming Wednesday, we're going to have the NFTA over into our chambers, and we're going to talk about these exact things, the, the disability issue, wages, um, and them cutting routes. So we're going to bring, we're going to bring that up, you know, because I think the public deserves that deserves to have reliable transportation in, in, in the city that they, that you know that it is. And you know, and another point is what. There's not, you know, everybody rides the bus. It's just not only poor people, but you right, have folks right. who like to park and ride. You have folks who sure. do all that, and some of the and some of the and some of the cuts that they want to put forward, it just, it just doesn't help the general public at at, at large. Well, I know they're gonna come in and they're gonna, you know, try to dazzle us with a bunch of numbers and things of that nature. But we have to keep it common sense. Hey, you can't cut these routes because these are some of our more reliable routes for folks to get back and forth to work. We have to come up with something different. Right. Well, that's, and, uh, you know, like I rode the bus, like I said, and that was generally when I lived in the Elmwood Village. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I, I could take the Delaware or the Elmwood bus. I live on Lancaster. I have exactly halfway between. Yeah. Um, and I know, like, they'll never touch those routes. And those they say, well, they'll say that it's because those routes get used a lot, and they do get used fa- fairly well. But they're, the one reason why they're not touching those routes is because those people are wealthy and and engaged and engaged, and and they're like, you know, they they are going to contact Chairwoman Baskin and and Senator Ryan and mm-hmm. you know Assemblyman Rivera and complain about it. Not just because they're just engaged, but they also probably because that's a better part, a well-off district of a part of the city. They have the resources where they yes. not they may not have to work two jo- full-time jobs in order yes. to put food on the table. So they might work one job and have the time to go to say, okay, I can email my legislator or I can call my assemblyman because I I have that time, I have that luxury of having that time to do that. Whereas you know. If you're in the east side or lower east side or lower west side, you know those more those areas where the median income is lower. A lot of those individuals are working multiple jobs and just and and have families to take care of us on top of that. So they're not going to have the luxury of having the opportunity to contact you or to you know contact Mitch Nowakowski at at, at City Hall or to contact you know. Chairman Pridgen or, you know, whoever that, that might be representing them um, yes. because they, they know who to contact and they would love to. It's, it's an issue that is very important to them. But when you're working 80 hours a week and you have two kids to take care of, <laughs> yep. you know, emailing your county legislators kind of falls down the list of things to do. Yeah. Well, the last thing to do. And that's why I have to be, I have to be boots on the ground. I have to be out there. I have to know what the issues are. So when this issue came up, I was like, okay, we need to do so. We need to talk about this. Um, my my district office, which is on Fillmore, you know, the 12 route, it, it will come up Utica. It will make a right, go up French Street and then pick up residents, you know, a lot of the elderly residents in this neighborhood, in, in the neighborhood and take them to wherever they had to go. Now the route comes up Utica and made a left, but it makes a right now goes all the way down Ferry. So those side streets, they don't even make it down these side streets anymore. So now that elderly person who needs this route has to walk to a different bus stop, which might be a mile away. Right. You know, when it came down French Street, it was right there. They could walk two, three houses down and the bus stop was right there. So now they might have to walk an additional mile away and they might not be equipped to do so. You know, and not only do we suffer from the 
uh, unreliable public uh, transportation issue. We already have health disparities in our community as well that, you know, will probably limit somebody from doing that. So, you know, when that's why I have to be, you know, engaged, boots on the ground, knowing what's going on and taking up the cost, like you said, because that might not be high on their priority list. People have to remember, too, is like with some of these individuals, because of the, the health inequalities, they might not be able to do it in like June when it's nice. Mm-hmm. In January, when the NFTA is saying that it's up to the local business owners to clear out the, the stops and absentee landlords aren't making sure that their sidewalks are clear, we're, these people are definitely not going to get access to it. And then it plays into, like you were talking about earlier, with like some of the food insecurity in lots yes. of areas of the city. That is why like places like Rite Aid become like people's number one grocery store. Where yes. they're overpaying and they're getting high sodium, high fat, high calorie yes. <laughs> uh, food that they have to sub- survive on. And people go, well, how can you be poor and not afford and also have obesity issues? Well, if what you're eating is like Dintimore because it's the only thing you can get to, like it's – look, I got I like Dintimore every now and then, but, you know, you got to cut it with something. Yeah, and, and agree, agree, and, that, and that's and that's and that's key because when I as I look at the uh, the the landscape of my district and I look at the proximity of the grocery stores within my district, and I can think of two, Jet Tops on Jefferson, it's a Tops on here at Jefferson and Utica, and I'm thinking of the next grocery store, and this is right outside of the district would be Tops on South Park. Right outside of South Park, you know, Louisiana, right out there. So there's not a lot of, you know, uh, you know, of that, you know, food uh, the grocery store structures that's located in our community that which which so uh, which we so need. We do have our um, corner stores, and we have a few of them who are trying to sell healthier products. But like you said, they're they're on that same uh, marketscape as. Right age, the Denti Moore, the canned products, you know, stuff high in sodium and high in fat contents and stuff that's just really not good for us. And we need more availability of fresh and nutritious food. I mean, you know, I would one of the things I want to work on is bringing a, a farmer's market, you know, like in Elmwood Village, like every Saturday I have a farmer's market in Elmwood Village. I like to see one of those on the east side of Buffalo folks and come and say, hey, I can grab some fresh fruit over here, some fresh vegetables over here, some things that they can take home to, you know, that'll hold them over until they can get to a bigger uh, grocery store and they don't have to rely so much on a corner store for products like that. I think we need to, I think we need to start thinking outside the box in terms of things like that. Those things lead to, you know, our high um, cancer rates in our community, obesity issues, and all the health disparities that we suffer in our communities. Whether it's a, a, a large corporation like a Rite Aid, which does just really doesn't give a shit whether if they serve bad food or a corner store, which might be more willing to try to co- carry like some produce. But if they are, it, it the margins are smaller and they're mm-hmm. going to carry like hardier produce like citrus or, you know, maybe, you know, tomatoes, but they're not going to carry leafy greens because they, right. they spoil too quickly. You know, um, you know, I mean, this is an issue like, you know, I, I used to do some work uh, when I, I did AmeriCorps. We did work with the Massachusetts Avenue, and they were doing like you know the mobile market with uh, getting produce to, around to the west side, and it was you know basically a farmers market except they had a big purple van called, painted like an eggplant that they would get around drive around the west side. It's not that 
your proprietor, your small business owner of a, these corner stores are resistant to carrying produce. It just doesn't make any sense for them financially to carry a lot of the stuff that really is healthy for you. I mean, there's mm-hmm. only so much nutritional value you can get from two lemons. <laughs> right, right, right. Or that apple, that banana they hold in the store. Right. Exactly. Uh Speaking of community development and economic development, we've talked about on the show a couple of times the legislation that passed last year and the development for uh, the cannabis regulation and business in New York State. Now, we know that we've talked to members of the state legislature that, you know, local leader, majority leader, Crystal People Stokes. She was very important in getting this legislation passed in the first place. And one of the reasons, and I keep explaining this to people, you know, that I know over and over again, that New York State looks like they drag their feet on passing mm-hmm. in the first place, or looks like, why is it taking them so long to get this done now? Other states have done it. Why New York State still going to take 12 to 18 months when, you know, it took Maine 18 months four years ago. But I was like, well, because New York State is, is trying to be more equity-based. You know, but what do you see as you know, chair of economic development, as a committee person on the minority and women-owned business committee? You know, the county's role and there are opportunities here, not just the county as a whole, but especially specifically the first district for you. You know, I think that um, what what we can see is, is business opportunities. I mean, there's places in the district where we could house a dispensary. Mm-hmm. Um, places where we can place CBD oils, you know, mm-hmm. those CBD rubs and things of that nature. You know, we could place those type of stores in the district. I think there's numerous business opportunities that minorities could benefit from within the first district because we have the we have the space, mm-hmm. so to speak. We have we have the room for it, and it's a great place to start that business. I mean, you know, downtown is downtown, and it's developed as far as it's going to be. And I don't know how much more you can develop it or add to that. So we can start thinking moving outside of the structure of downtown development to more to more community development. Say, where could these businesses like these be more centrally located and affect the community that you know that it's that it hurt so much? And I, I you know, I think the first district and our, and our second legislative district would be good be key because those are our east side and west side districts that could benefit from something like this. I know right now they're just probably figuring out the taxing structure and all those things that the uh, state would have to get into place because, you know, they got to get their piece off of it as well. Right. But I think there's uh, numerous opportunities that are to, that the uh, east side of Buffalo can play in helping that a great uh, industry for, you know, the, can- the marijuana industry in the first legislative district. I know that you know they haven't released the details of it. Governor Hochul and and the state legislature are looking to put together some sort of like it's I've heard it like two hundred million dollar fund um, that's supposed to be available to you know business uh, owners or to proprietors for cannabis related uh, businesses, um, but they haven't released like how that how, how is that money going to be available and you know what is it going to take? Is it going to be a zero interest loan or whatever it's going to be? You know, but I, I think that's going to be important for the first and second district, especially um, and you know and pro- and you know, you know legislator Chimera up in the third district. I mean, University Heights, Riverside. You know, the, I mean, these are districts that are are, are going to you know, be able to benefit from this as well. And you know, especially given that. It's a, it's an unusual business to get into because since it's still illegal federally, a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of banks aren't going to give you loans. And no. I'm not telling tales outside of school. A lot of banks don't have a good history on giving loans to minority women-owned business, anyways. But from my banking background, a lot of time those banks look at 
the marijuana industry, no matter where you're at in the country, as a place where money laundering can happen quickly. Right. So that's right. A, that, that'll be one of, the, one of the first things they will have to push back for. So that's why you won't you, you, you don't see it uh, legalized federally. And we have to assure these banks that, hey, these are legit businesses and these are you know, these are money. These are money growers because it's such a cash intensive business. They're going to look at it like that. But I think that, you know, we have to be more progressive in their thoughts. Right. And and uh, and moving forward, um, and we'll and we'll see. But we have, you know, we have we got M and T here. We got a few banks here, and I think those are conversations we need to begin to have, like now, mm-hmm. to prepare them for it. And I know that they probably, you know, they're not going to move on it. But I'm saying this was just conversations to have, so that you know, as this thing begins to grow, it's going to be, it's going to just take one bank to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to take a chance, and then it, you'll see the ripple effects of it. When you're talking about a business that has the growth potential and the growth rate. Of mm-hmm. the marijuana-related businesses, you know that that first bank that takes a chance on it, and then goes and makes like an extra like five million dollars that year. I think yes. other banks are going to pick up and go. You know that's not a bad idea. Maybe we can do this too. So you you mentioned uh, the you know the the second district, and you mentioned you're 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 from the first district. So I just want to ask you: Do you ever tell Chairwoman Baskin? Do you ever be like it's uh, like give her like a silver medal for being in the second district, and you're in the first district? <laughs> no, I don't. No, I don't do that. <laughs> uh, but I do say, hey, I'm the first district. But you know, I just look at us as you know, equal. We have we have uh, same. We have the same type of district with the same type of problem. So you know, that's 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 my approach to it. And I and when I look at each district as a whole, mm-hmm. you know, we you know, although we represent different districts, but we all have to keep a county-based approach to things. So, you know, and that's how I kind of look at things. I look at it on a wider wider angle to say, hey, it's a county-based approach. Yes, we all represent our districts, but we all have to think, you know, county as well so that every district get that, get the, the proper equity it needs. Some districts need more than others and the first, second, and probably uh, Shamir's district, you know, which, which holds the cities, needs a little bit more attention than some of the other districts do. But I look at our, each district on a whole, on a county, county-wide level. But no, I don't give her the silver medal. She's a chairwoman <laughs> right now. So she carries the gold medal right now. She's a chairwoman. So I just, you know, I'll, she can have the gold medal right now. All right. And then uh, just to finish up here, uh, we like to do this with every uh, elected that we have on. We it's, we call it like a better know a district type of thing. So, uh, you know, what's your, what's your, what's your favorite little known fact about the district or maybe like your favorite hidden restaurant or cultural organization, you know, give us, give us something that now about the first district that maybe our listeners don't know. We had, you gave me a lot to think about. It's a lot going on in there. So I'll, I'll just give you a couple real quickly. Right. Uh, number one, you know, I don't know if a lot of you folks know the underground railroad is housed in my district, you know, Michigan street Baptist church, right there, the underground railroad starts there. Um, that's one, uh, you know, there's probably, is one known fact, but it's in the first legislative district. I just wanted to be cl- make that clear. Um, secondly, um, Aretha Franklin's father, C.L. Franklin was a pastor in Buffalo at Friendship Baptist Church on Clinton Avenue. Um, he was a pastor there for many years, and a lot of folks don't know that, um, but he was the, you know, one of the first pastors at this church. Church has been standing for about 100 years off of Clinton Avenue, which is in my district. And one of my favorite places I like to go uh, to have uh, have some food at is the uh, it's um, Golden Cup Coffee right at Jefferson and Utica. Excellent sandwich. The, uh, the owner there grinds his own coffee. 
So it's a great cup of coffee there and a great place for a sandwich and to interface with the community because I like to be out so much. So those are three little known facts about the First Lance District. Legislator Johnson, it's been great. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, you know, look forward to having you again, again in the future. Um, you know, maybe once we 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 know how much money we spent on the Bill Stadium. <laughs> right. Hey, but thank you for allowing me to be here. It was a great conversation, and my pleasure. Thank you.